My Fame Explained podcast episode 19, Dr. Ellen Fisher. And that way I'll never forget sitting there in the lab and looking at the first results of the brain in love and thinking to myself, my God, I've somehow stumbled into Mother Nature's kitchen and been able to see a primitive uh, brain response that must have evolved millions of years ago. Welcome to the My Fame Explained podcast, a podcast with the people you know and the personal stories behind their fame. I'm your host, Larry Gilbert. Dr. Ellen Fisher, biological anthropologist, is a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and chief science advisor to Match.com. She uses brain scamming fMRI to study the neutral systems associated with the sex drive, romantic love, attachment, rejection, love addiction, and long-term partnership happiness. She has written six books on lust, romance, and attachment, now sold in over 25 countries. Among them, Why We Love, Why Him, Why Her, and The Anatomy of Love. She's also studied courtship trends in the digital age using a representative sample of 50,000 single Americans to examine hooking up, friends with benefits, video chatting, and why today's dating patterns may lead to decades of relative family stability due to a trend she calls slow love. Using data collected from her biologically-based questionnaire, the Fisher Temperament Inventory, now taken by 15-plus million people in 40 countries, Dr. Fisher appears regularly on national and international TV, radio, print, and podcasts. She's a TED All-Star with over 12 million views of her TED Talks and was chosen in 2015 by Business Insider as one of the 15 most amazing women in science. So here's Dr. Ellen Fisher and her scientific love fame explained. So when I graduated college, I was a communications major. Um, and obviously that deals with, with the psychology of how two minds interact. And I'm the type of person that'll Google topic to better understand it. And it was around that time that I came across your book, Why We Love. And I remember reading it. Um, and ever since then, you know, I've kind of been hooked on on you, your career, your findings, and all of that. And, you know, that was nearly 20 years ago. So it's great to finally, like, finally be able to talk to you um, after having read well, thank you. your books. And, and I find, you know, the subject of love um, really fascinating. And yeah, so it was, it's an evergreen topic. Right? Yeah. I mean, everybody, it affects everybody. Um, yeah. And I, I want to dive into that. But first, I want to start with, with you and, and, uh, and your background. So, um, you know, where were you born and what was life like growing up for you? Okay. Well, um, first of all, and probably most important about me, is that I'm an identical twin. And uh, my identical twin sister's name is Lorna. She currently lives in southern France. She's an artist. She's a very good painter. She she uh, um, shows in um, Paris and Japan and China, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the bottom line is, when you grow up an identical twin... Um, Everybody asks identical twins, um, do you like the same food? Do you have the same friends? Do you have the same cavity in your teeth? So long before I knew that there was a nature-nurture controversy that everybody's arguing and has been for centuries about how much behavior is learned and how much is, is genetically based, long before I knew about this a whole issue, I knew that there was genetics to my behavior. So, uh, um, so And that has really colored my career all along. I mean, there's certainly um, environmental influences on who you are, no question about it. But an awful lot of people, uh, scientists, have established that a good 40 to 60 percent of who you are 
the variance in personality comes from your um, genetics. So I've always been focused on more on how we are alike than how we are different. You know, an awful lot of anthropologists go and they study the Zuni as opposed to the Navajo or the people from Afghanistan as opposed to the people from, you know, Tanzania, looking for differences in, in how people grew up, et cetera. I've always been interested in how we're all alike. And so that's really what led me to study uh, romantic love and feelings of attachment. So um, that, was, that was, and I had a wonderful childhood uh, I grew up in uh, New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, uh, which is, a, I guess, a bedroom community for New York. Um, my father was a, <clears throat> excuse me, my father was a good friend of Henry R. Luce and was in management at Time Magazine. So, um, all around the house were all kinds of magazines like Time and Sports Illustrated and Life and uh, et cetera. And um, I grew up in a glass house. Uh, I was born in New York City. Uh, and um, we moved to New Canaan when I was four years old. I only remember a couple of things from New York. Uh, and uh, we moved to New Canaan, and we moved into a glass house. It was glass. It was the shape of an H, and there was a beautiful, um, um, you know, walkway between the two sides of the H, which was all flagstone floors uh, because, of course, there weren't any walls. Um, the heat came up from the floor uh, my twin sister and I used to roast our M&Ms on the floor. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you always had to wear Yeah, and in the winter, you really had to wear shoes because the floor was a little too hot. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a lot of land around. I remember the foxes walking by, and I remember skunks putting their noses on the window, and, and uh, there was quite a bit of land. And so um, I can't say anything unhappy about my childhood. I mean, I... Uh, I I was scared of my mother. She was she was a, she was a, a, quite a force, um, but I adored my father. And um, I've often wondered why it is that so many people talk about toxic masculinity and and other issues that I just don't understand. I loved my brother. I loved my father. I've had very good sexual and romantic relationships with men. Nobody gets out of love alive. We all have disappointments, of course, and exactly. certainly have had some. But. Um, but anyway, I had a good job. I was sent to boarding school, um, which was I didn't like much. Um, I couldn't follow the rules. Um, I was suspended for smoking, <laughs> but I got back in and I and I graduated and and I went to a small girls college, uh, uh, Hood College, down in Frederick, Maryland, which I also found very confining because uh, of the rules and. And then I went, I ended up graduating from NYU, New York University, and I loved that. I loved that. My, my Spanish teacher was, uh, um, was um, from Harlem. Uh, uh, my uh, philosophy teacher was from, I don't know, someplace like the Ukraine or Russia. I mean, certainly um, Eastern European. And um, I really fell in love with anthropology. I was, I'm just fascinated with, as I say, who, the way we're all alike. And this was the topic that, um, uh, you know, sent me into my career. So you became an anthropologist, but then at what point did you transition from, or I guess it's kind of included, but anthropology into then just studying love and human love and, you know, how the brain yeah. works in love? Well, what was interesting for me um, was that... Uh, between college and, and graduate school, uh, my, one of my college professors, uh, Ruth Freed, 
uh, in, in anthropology, told me that I had a sem- I finished graduating in in um, January as opposed to June because um, it took a little time to um, to migrate from the small southern school up to NYU. But anyway, so the bottom line is I had a whole semester to do whatever, and uh, I was introduced to uh, Ruth Free's husband, Dr. Stan Freed at the Museum of Natural History, who sent me to the Navajo Reservation uh, to answer 15 questions about family life. And um, I had never been west of, of Manhattan. <laughs> I've probably been to New Jersey and maybe Chicago, but the bottom line is I yeah, really yeah. had never seen an American Indian before, and <clears throat> and that was a fabulous experience. I mean, uh, almost nobody in my family spoke English. They all spoke Navajo. Navajo is a very complicated language. Uh, you know, we have about, I think, 36 sounds in the English language. Well, they've got something like 76 sounds. You can't um, you can't uh, learn it unless you really spend your time. And I'm not linguistically skilled, so right. I did learn one uh, phrase, um, and it's a tone language. So you've got to say the tone at the right way. And I learned that somebody say "hashinashiage," which means "I love you, my little one." Of course, I was um, I was 23, so that's the kind of thing I wanted to learn All right. um, at the time. And I learned some other words. But bottom line is, I lived there for four months in a. Uh, well, first in a hogan, which is their their uh, uh, traditional home, and then in a a little square one room house, and uh, with uh, with seven people who came and went, and um, potbelly stove, and two goats, and uh, and I uh, anyway, so that was a great experience, and I decided I definitely wanted to go to graduate school. My major in college had been a double major; it had been uh, psychology and anthropology, because I. I had gotten a note from the dean's office uh, while I was still about to graduate, and they said to me, I said, they said, well, you know, you've got a, so many credits in both anthropology and psychology. Which do you want to have be your major? So I went in, and I asked the per- somebody there, I said, well, can I have both? And she said, yes. So I had a double major in psychology and anthropology, but it was anthropology that really interested me because – Psychology really, at that time, at that time in the mid, in the late 60s, um, was only focused really on your environment, how you grew up, what your environment, uh, 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 you know, how your env- environment made you behave and think and yeah. act and your values and your systems, et cetera. And I didn't, that didn't answer the whole question for me. I mean, so anyway, the bottom line is I, I went to uh, University of Colorado Boulder for graduate school. In anthropology, it takes many years because you've got to do field work. So um, I was there for seven years, and it got time to write a Ph.D. dissertation. And I just even remember in my classes at that time, you know, um, they, I remember one time um, – I don't know what the essay was supposed to be about, but I knew perfectly well the professor kept on saying, well, you know, all of your behavior comes out of your childhood. And I thought to myself, this isn't right. There's reasons that my twin sister and I are alike, and it's not because we grew up in the same place. And um, so anyway, when it came time, and this was an enormous moment in my life, when it came time to write my PhD dissertation, um, I decided I would write it on evolution of pair bonding, uh, monogamy. Mono means one, gammy means spouse. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean fidelity. It just means forming a partnership to rear your young. And um, only 3% of mammals do that. Lots of birds do. 90% of birds do because somebody's got to sit on those eggs, and that person's individual is going to starve to death unless somebody helps them. So mm-hmm. among so over 8,000 species of birds, they form pair bonds like robins and bluebirds and swans, etc. But people are among the very few mammals that form partnerships to rear their young. 97% of mammals do not do that. Human beings do. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, Helen, if there's any part of human behavior that would have evolved, that is somehow couched in our DNA, it would be our reproductive patterns. Because as Darwin would have said, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. So love matters. How you how you breed, how you raise your young matters. And there would have been selection, I would have thought, selection for all kinds of patterns to have evolved in the brain through natural selection rather than just learning to fall in love as you grow up. So bottom line is that was my PhD dissertation as the evolution of pair bonding, why we form partnerships and uh, to rear our young. And I'm happy to tell you why what I said, but I could say it rapidly. But the bottom line is after doing that, um, I got out of graduate school and um, I then went on to study uh, romantic love and, and feelings of deep attachment to a partner. What was interesting is my very first article that I wrote on, I, 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 I mean, my very first, well, I had other articles before that, but the bottom line is one of my initial articles was on the fact that we've evolved three distinctly different um, uh, brain systems uh, for mating, courtship mating, and parenting. And um, those three systems are the sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. And I thought to myself, these these must have evolved. They must have evolved. So anyway, I wrote my first academic article on this about what I hypothesized as these three basic brain systems. And sure enough, one of the four peer reviewers, you know, you always send it to, they always peer review it, mm-hmm. wrote back and said, oh, no, you can't study love. This is what she wrote. I think it was a she. Frankly, I don't really know because they don't tell you, but I made that assumption. Anyway, whoever it was, now, the peer reviewer wrote back and said, um, you can't study romantic love. Uh, it's part of the supernatural. And I looked at that sentence, and I thought to myself, hang on here. Nobody thinks that anger is part of the supernatural or or uh, fear is part of the supernatural or anxiety is part of the supernatural. Why would this intense feeling of romantic love be part of the supernatural? I, my hypothesis that it was a basic brain system that evolved millions of years ago to enable us to focus our mating energy on just one individual and start the process of forming a partnership and having babies and sending your DNA on into tomorrow. So that's sort of the beginning. Yeah, and it's interesting that that kind of response, I would never have thought that. And then for you to go on and then make that your whole life's career yeah. It's pretty interesting. One thing led to I, uh, another. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so you kind of like like took it on scientifically, the study of love, um, scanning, uh, scanning the brains of couples um, using fMRIs. So 
how did how did that come into play? You know, when you kind of took it to that level from you know thinking about love and and you know your kind of your perception on it on on what you've learned or what what you experienced growing up to be able to come to those conclusions and then take it one step further and then use these fMRIs and study the brains of couples in love or recently broken up. It's interesting. I was I was I just remember the moment. It's, you know, these moments in life when something suddenly occurs to you. I was I I I, I came back to New York after uh, graduate school and I was living here and actually I'd gotten a job at um um I I didn't really want an academic job oddly enough. Uh I'm not, I didn't really want that lifestyle and I wanted to do my own work and I know that's pretty weird for a really academic egghead scientist, but that's the way it was. Anyway, I was walking through um, uh, Greenwich Village, actually right through the park, and it suddenly occurred to me, oh, wow, I bet we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. Sex drive gets you out there trying to, to, you know, try out a range of partners. I mean, you can have sex with people you're not in love with. Romantic love, I hypothesize, enable you to focus on just one individual to a longer-term uh, partnership. And then the third brain system of attachment evolved to enable you to stick with this partner at least long enough to raise a child through infancy uh, together as a team. And then I kept walking. I said, now, wait a minute. You know, a lot of people have studied sex drive, <clears throat> and a lot of um, psychologists have studied um, attachment, but not putting people in brain scanners. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I could um, study the biology of romantic love. And, um, and maybe I could put people in brain scanners and actually see what happens when somebody is looking for a photograph of their sweetheart. So that's what got me onto it. And, um, of course, I needed a, 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 an fMRI machine. <laughs> and I needed um, uh, somebody who was very technologically sophisticated. I, I don't, I, those scans are very complicated to read. I mean, you really need a mathematical uh, mind and somebody who is very technologically sophisticated. That's not me. I'm a big idea person, and I'm certainly uh, write it all about write all about it. And I certainly get on the machine and out of the machine and give them all the questionnaires and design the whole thing. But I needed some support, so um, I got um, two people to uh, help me: a, a psychologist, uh, Suni Stony Brook, and my brain scanning partner, Lucy Brown at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, uh, and um, I started putting people into the brain scanner. And um, our first study was people who was, were very happily in love. They, they were all young. Um, they had, I was teaching at Rutgers at the time, uh, and so I told all my classes, is there anybody who's just fallen madly in love? I, uh, <clears throat> I told some of the people I was my team, uh, uh, you know, to ask around to. And it's actually not hard to find people who are in love. I mean, it's a very common feeling. Uh, almost everybody feels it. I only met two people my whole life who didn't feel romantic love when they were young, but both of them fell in love with somebody when they were in their 50s. Both of them even said to me, they said, you know, Helen, I never understood the story of Romeo and Juliet. Now I do. But anyway... Wait, um, they, they really I had would... never fallen in love? 
They had never felt that, that feeling before? No. One man, oh, that's interesting. one man and one woman, both had gotten married. Both were um, happily married. Both had, I think, two or three children. Hmm. Um, and neither one of them fell in love with their, one was a husband and one was a wife. Um, they fell in love, both of them, with somebody else. Um, and both of them kept it a secret. And both of them left that other partnership um, after about two years and went back to the deep attachment that they had with their with their spouse. But oh, both of them profoundly understood, uh, now finally understood romantic love. So, um, I mean, the first thing I had to do is figure out what the characteristics of romantic love are uh, before I started putting people in the brain scanner because I, I had to look for these characteristics in the people I put in the, to the scanner. So... I read, a, I don't know, or 50 years of psychological literature and uh, people defining um, uh, romantic love. And, and I've, I've actually, uh, I, I read a lot of poetry uh, because uh, poetry is a very good artifact of, of this brain system. I mean, you know, an anthropologist really depend on artifacts as to know about human behavior and human brain and human evolution. But they look at, you know, arrowheads and pot shirts and post holes for houses, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I realized that poetry from around the world could uh, tell me um, about uh, uh, romantic love. And so, I mean, I read Japanese poetry, Chinese uh, um, novels, uh, I mean, in, in English, of course, uh, translated, and ancient Egyptian uh, poetry, uh, um, uh, Assyrian uh, stories, stories in the Bible, uh, and certainly Western Europe and United States, et cetera, and, and things in uh, Navajo, songs, uh, myths, legends, uh, and then, of course, I mean, there's a huge number of artifacts of, of romantic love. I mean, <laughs> novels and uh, poems, uh, but also symphonies, ballets, uh, operas, uh, 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 theater, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. So bottom line is I was able to, before I put the people in the brain scanner, I had come up with a list of traits that seemed to be around the world characteristic of romantic love. So I had an idea of what I was looking for. And then um, I put flyers up at uh, Einstein and Rutgers and SUNY Stony Brook, because some of my colleagues were from Stony, SUNY Stony Brook. And it um, wasn't hard to find people. And so then what I would do is interview them. And it's very easy to interview somebody who's madly in love. They are dying to talk about it. And I told them all about what would happen in the machine. Some of my colleagues wanted a secret. I said, that's not going to work. I need them to know what's going to go on. Um, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and did. And I created the protocol or the, the design of it. And what happens in the machine is uh, um, it's a 12-minute thing. And although they have to be in there for an hour because you've got to do all these anatomical things of what their their brain, you know, how their brain is structured so that I know which parts of the brain are active. Um, and so uh, anyway, uh, uh, what, the, what, what the exact experiment is, uh, they would bring in a photograph of somebody who they really were madly in love with. Not, not sex, we're not studying the sex drive, but madly in love with. 
and also a neutral photograph of somebody who they um, well, they like the person, but there's no intense positive or negative response. So what the experiment was is they would look at the photograph of their suite lying in the machine with a computer outside the machine, casting the, um, uh, an image onto a mirror that's right in front of their face, and this way they can see the photograph of their sweetheart. So they'd look at their their sweetheart for uh, 30 seconds, and then they would look at the neutral photograph, and we'd scan the brain under both uh, both 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 things. The problem with that is that when you're madly in love with somebody, you can't stop talking, uh, thinking about them. So I needed a distraction task, and there's there's some very common distraction tasks in psychology. And one of them is casting a large number on a screen like 8,421 and having the person look at that number for 30 seconds and count backwards in increments of seven. <laughs> Even oh, mathematically, you know, it, it, it's, and, it, and I didn't care if they got it right, they just had to do it because right. it drives all of the blood from these centers uh, that are creating feelings of romantic love into mathematical centers. And sometimes anxiety centers, but never mind. So anyway, this was starting either with the neutral or the positive image. It would be positive, count back, neutral, count back, positive, count back, neutral, count back. Six rotations uh, for 12 minutes. This way, we count. We were able to capture the brain activity under three circumstances: while they were looking at the picture of their sweetheart, while they were counting backwards, and while they were looking at the neutral photograph. And that way, we were able to lay on top of one another the images, the brain working, while the person was thinking of their sweetheart, and while they were looking at the um, the neutral photograph. Then we would cancel out what they had in common, leaving the brain in love. And that way, I'll never forget sitting there in the lab and looking at the first results of the brain in love and thinking to myself, my God. I've somehow stumbled into Mother Nature's kitchen and been able to see a primitive uh, brain response that must have evolved millions of years ago uh, to enable our forebears to start the mating process by falling madly in love, uh, having babies, and uh, and then I also began to see the brain reasons linked with attachment in later studies. So anyway, that yeah. was the first study, and... Uh, and we wrote it up, and uh, um, one of my great pleas in life is one of my colleagues wanted to be first author, and he had graduate students. He wanted to save his job, and I gave it to him, which was probably my biggest sadness in, in my career. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it must have given you goosebumps, though, to unravel this and discover this. Um, I mean, at least I would Absolutely. think so, especially, you know, wh where you had thought about it so much up to that point, you know, to then finally kind of pull back the, the, the layer, if you will, and, and discover this. Absolutely. And then I began to think to myself, I mean, that was really great deal of international and national, um, you know, interest in it, uh, because it's an evergreen topic, romantic love, and everybody, has, almost everybody has felt it, and everybody suffers. So I began to think to myself, wait a minute, you know, this really isn't very thrilling. I mean, it's nice that people fall in love. I mean, we got so many artifact of it it's important but what's really important is when you've been rejected in love 
that's when people really suffer. That's when people kill themselves. That's when people kill other people. That's when they slip into clinical depression. That's where they, you know, stalk each other. That's where they, you know, lose jobs because they just sit around and cry or drink too much or drive too fast and, you know, you know, turn into a real pest for all their friends and relatives, talking about it. So that's what I need to do next. So that's um, what I did next. Uh, I... Uh, and, and so I began to put people who were rejected in love into the scanner. And this time I did not give away first authorship. I had learned my lesson. And, um, and thank you. And put uh, 15 people into the scanner who had just been rejected in love. That was much harder. Well, they were all hard because, A, I'm claustrophobic, and putting people into a machine always made me feel so anxious for them. And uh, the other thing that I did is before I put anybody else into the scanner, I put myself in. Uh, and I am claustrophobic. Uh, but I'm obviously not totally claustrophobic because I was able to do it. I've run into some people who can't even look at one of those machines. <laughs> and uh, I was able to do it. Yeah. I did it because um, I was madly in love with somebody. And then the guy dumped me for a while and I put myself in again when he finally came back and we lived together for 18 years. But the bottom line, I was able to capture my own brain first and knew the experience so that I could then not only be more sympathetic, well, I was always sympathetic to the people I was working with, but um, but really knew the experience, was able to explain to them that I had done it too, et cetera. So then anyway, then I put the people in who had been rejected in love, and um, that was much harder. And it was harder because the people were in so much pain. There was one girl who sobbed through the entire experience experiment, and we couldn't even use her data because you can't move it in an MRI machine. So that had to be thrown out. Um, uh, and then another person, another girl, um, didn't show up for the scanning. And, and these, it's hard to get the time on these machines. And uh, and you're assembling a real team of people to, 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 to run the machine and take the images and I'm there, you know, to, and anyway, the bottom line is she, she hadn't gotten out of bed in three days. Somebody had to go over to her dorm room and, and, and get, her, get her out. Um, and then another person, um, a guy, um, you know, he uh, became uh, so distraught in the machine looking at this woman who had left him um, that he really got depressed that following night. And that, I really learned something from that. From that moment on, every single person who came out of that machine of any variety, because uh, we did other kinds of scanning experiments, um, I called them that night. I wanted to make absolutely positive that they were okay, and if they weren't okay, I would explain to them what I think had happened with the brain, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you're working with human subjects <laughs> on a very powerful <clears throat> thing, such as um, romantic love, um, y you have to be very vigilant uh, about uh, you know what you're doing and how you're doing it and some of the... Uh, fallout that it could be. So anyway, that was my second experiment. And then I was able to prove something I had long hypothesized. I had long hypothesized that romantic love was an addiction, uh, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well, and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. And from the results of that second experiment on rejection in love, 
I was able to find activity in a little factory near the base of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And that brain factory um, is activated with any addiction, any substance addiction like, I don't know, heroin or cocaine or nicotine or alcohol addiction, or and any behavioral addiction like sex addiction or gambling addiction, et cetera. And sure enough, that same brain region becomes active when you've been rejected in love. So then I went back to my initial data of, uh, for, of people who are happily in love, and I found activity in that same brain region. I just went back to look at the same the material. I didn't do it again, uh, the study again. And so I have come to believe that romantic love, one of these three basic brain systems, is a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well. I mean, you overlook everything in order to focus on this person. I mean, uh, and of course, you probably should. Uh, and a perfectly horrible addiction. I haven't been able to get anybody to believe me that it is a can be a, a positive addiction. I have written a few academic articles on romantic love as an addiction, and um, I've tried to say that. And my most recent article was in a book, and I couldn't get my co-authors to. They even t- they took that part out. I they you know uh, academics are dedicated to the idea that every addiction is a, a lethal harmful addiction and so i don't know when people will get to seeing that but uh i found the addiction centers uh, activated when you're happily in love and uh and a lot of those happily in love people uh uh you know they when you're madly in love with somebody, you can overlook what's wrong with the person. So maybe we say this is bad, but the bottom line is, uh, if you have babies with them, you passed your DNA onto tomorrow and sent your yourself onto eternity. And we've evolved an enormously powerful brain system to do that. What I learned most from all of that brain scanning, well, I learned a lot of things, but maybe most is that romantic love is a drive. It's a basic mating drive that evolved millions of years ago. I had thought that it was an emotion or a whole pile of emotions from good to bad. And it is. And, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved. There's a lot of cortical things you're thinking about. Well, what do I wear? What did he say? How should I do that? There's all that. But the bottom line is um, every one of the people we put in the machine varied in their emotions and varied in their cognitive thinking process, but they were all the same in this um, uh, in the activation of a little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, or VTA, that makes dopamine and sends dopamine to many brain regions. And that's what gives you the obsession, the focus, the motivation, the craving, the energy um, of intense romantic love. And that little factory, the VTA, lies right next to the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. And it suddenly occurred to me, wow, thirst and hunger keep you alive today, and romantic love evolved to enable you to, uh, you know, remain uh, in love and, and focus your mating energy on just one person and send your DNA into tomorrow. So romantic love is not an emotion. A lot of emotions involved. A lot of cognitive processes involved, but it's basically a drive 
a drive that evolved millions of years ago to start the mating process. Okay, so we know why people fall in love, the brain in love, the brain during a breakup. But so why do people cheat then? And then what happens then, you know, with, with the brain? It's interesting how many of the people who have been rejected in love um, that I put into the brain scanner uh, had been cheated on. And that was really what was causing the breakup. So I wasn't studying how they felt about the cheating. I was, I was studying their feeling of rejection. So I can't say that I or anybody else has actually put anybody in the, in the machine to see um, why they cheated. And I don't even think an fMRI would tell you why they cheated. Um, but um, I certainly looked at adultery in 42 cultures around the world. Everywhere in the world people cheat, even in places where you can get your head chopped off for it, people cheat. And there's all kinds of psychological uh, explanations. I mean, you know, people will say, well... Uh, I wanted to solve a sex problem. Uh, I I I wanted to walk on the wild side. Uh, I got lonely when my partner was out of town. Um, I slipped into doing it when I was traveling. Um, I wanted to do it to be, get caught and break up my relationship, uh, my marriage. I wanted to do it to supplement my marriage. I wanted to do it to get caught and talk about and improve my marriage. I mean, uh, dozens of reasons that people will tell you. Uh, that they are um, that they cheated, but what I found very interesting is that it's a study out of the 1980s, and when they asked people um, why they cheated, over 50% of them um, ended up saying men and women ended up saying they were actually in a happy marriage when they cheated, and that once again maybe begin to think, hmm, could it be? that um, there's some evolutionary basis to this. Maybe there's a predisposition to cheat, no matter what the circumstances. So anyway, um, uh, my Darwinian hypothesis is that, dialing back a million years, um, if a man uh, had a wife and two children and went off hunting and slept with some other women and ended up having two extra children, uh, he would double the amount of DNA he sent into tomorrow. And along with that, he would pass on whatever this predisposition for adultery is. But why would a woman be adulterous? Well, she might have an extra child with somebody, but if her husband uh, slipped into a gorge and died or uh, deserted her for somebody else or got sick and died, uh, uh, an adulterous partner may step in and help her with her babies. And uh, I, I remember one quote from uh, Anissa, a fabulous a book about a woman uh, who lived among the, who was a Kung Bushman in Botswana. And um, she once said, well, you, you know, you, you have to, to not be adulterous. Uh, you know, one person gives you meat, another person gives you bees, a, a third person gives you something else. So the bottom line is through millions of years, of the sort of the adaptive payoffs of adultery, I think that the human animal, human creature, has evolved what I call a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to fall in love, form a partnership, raise your babies as a team, and also a predisposition to cheat, a dual human reproductive strategy. Now, not everybody has played with that. I, I, I know some people who've never cheated. And I also know people who cheat all the time. 
And I know people who cheated in their early years and then settled down with somebody who was perfect for them. So human beings vary. Um, in fact, I've never met two people who I thought were alike, and I'm an identical twin. Um, but um, I think we've evolved a powerful brain systems for uh, uh, sex drive, of course, feelings of intense romantic love and feelings of deep attachment for a partner. But I think we've also evolved a predisposition to look elsewhere. And what's what's when you take a look at the brain, it's actually not too difficult to explain what's going on. Because you can lie in bed at night and feel deep attachment for one person and then swing into feelings of romantic love for somebody else. And then swing into feelings of the sex drive for somebody you barely know. So the bottom line is these three brain systems don't always go together. Uh, you can feel attachment for one person while you feel intense romantic love for somebody else. So basically, uh, all people everywhere in the world are have inherited a bit of a, of a, of a pickle. We yeah. decide. We have to decide with cognitive processes how we're going to handle our reproductive life. And different people do it differently. And some people are more plagued with desire to cheat than others are. Uh, some people find just the right person and, and never cheat. Um, other people go from one partner to another to another, but don't cheat during those partnerships. And some people um, cheat all the time. How about like as far as attraction goes? Because I know like some people will say, oh, you know, I have a particular type. You know, th these are the kind of people that I that I would normally be attracted to. And yet sometimes, you know, they might fall in love with somebody who's not that quote unquote stereotypical type that they would normally be attracted to. Uh, and I've had this conversation with, with, with friends recently about this, um, you know, where some say, yeah, they have this type, but they haven't necessarily always either dated or fallen in love with their type. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've been, for the last 16 years, been chief science advisor to Match.com, the Internet dating site, and, and they have noticed that people will say what they're looking for on their profile and then begin to go out with somebody who doesn't fit what they say they're looking for. <laughs> so it's not unusual. A, a timing plays a role. Proximity plays a role. Um, uh, you know, we we fool ourselves in love and... Somebody's very humorous, but they're not very sexually faithful or they're very lazy or something. You know, when you're in love with somebody, there's a huge brain system uh, in the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. I, I could show it to you, but whatever. And um, that brain region is linked with um, uh, negativity bias. In other words, we are built to remember the negative. For millions of years, it was nice to remember who liked you, but if you forgot who didn't like you, you could die. So we remember the negative. And when you fall in love with somebody, you can overlook the negative. We found in our brain scanning studies that when you're madly in love, um, you overlook the negative. We call it positive illusions, the ability to overlook what they don't like about somebody and focus on what they do. And before I put people in the brain scan, an fMRI, uh, I would ask people, I said, what do you, uh, lots of questions, of course, but one of the questions was, what do you not like? about him or her and they could lift what they didn't like but then they swept that aside and just focused on what they did like i mean as chaucer said love is blind and in fact when you're madly in love you 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 can overlook what you really don't like then some of that uh, intense passion begins to dribble away and uh, sure enough you notice oh my god he really is lazy. Oh, my goodness. She really 
very self-centered. Oh, my God, he really is, da-da-da-da-da. And then you try to change it, and you stick with it for a while, and you hope things change or whatever, and eventually you either leave or you adapt to it. Um, so it's not unusual. But I will say this. Uh, um, you know, I study personality, and I've been able to establish that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. And um, um, people are very high on the dopamine scale. I call them explorers. They tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic people. And they're naturally drawn to people like themselves. I've got data in, on 40,000 people. Um, dopamine goes for dopamine. And explorers go for explorers. People expressive of the serotonin system, the traits in the serotonin system in the brain, traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority, uh, tend to be religious, but not always, um, love details, uh, concrete rather than theoretical thinkers, cautious people. Uh, Mike Pence is a perfect example, so is Mitt Romney, uh, so is Queen Elizabeth. Uh, these people also are drawn to somebody like themselves. Similarity also attracts. Traditional goes for traditional. Adventurous goes for adventurous. In those two cases, similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites attract. High testosterone people express the traits of the testosterone system are naturally drawn to people who are high on the estrogen system. Um, and, of course, we all express all four of these brain systems. I mean, for example, my new husband and I are both high in the dopamine system. He's also a writer, et cetera. And he's high on the testosterone system, and high on, I'm high on the traits in the estrogen system. So it works very well. But the question you ask is, why do we fall for people who wouldn't, we, we wouldn't naturally fall for? I think timing is, is a huge part of it, uh, uh, certainly circumstances, uh, I mean, I you know, I mean, I can see some guy who's in his mid forties. He's played around for many years. He's gone out with a lot of women, and he suddenly wants to settle down and have children. And sure enough, he meets a school teacher who's very calm, very traditional, not really his style of woman, but he's looking for babies. He's looking to settle in, etc. And he falls madly in love with her. And sure enough. Uh, uh, you know, once that brain activity gets going, uh, he can't see that the day's going to come when he wants to walk up Mount Everest and carry the children with him. And she says, you're not going. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. They're not going to see eye to eye. But as long as they both continue to respect each other, it could probably still be a very good partnership. Yeah, and I mean, I think with any relationship, you know, it's 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 a 50-50 partnership and both have to be, you know, equally um, involved or, or want it to, to work, you know, for it to work. And, you know, anything no short of that, it, it, it won't. So, it, you know, like the old you saying goes, be willing and, to compromise. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and like the old saying goes, you know, it takes two to tango. It, it totally does, you know, cause if one partner does and one partner doesn't, then it's not going to work, you know, a hundred percent of it won't work. Um, if it's not, and if one person's equal. a narcissist and the other is controlling or one person's totally adventurous and one's terrified of stepping out the front door, uh, you know, and if you know, what people fight about, they fight about money, they fight about in-laws, they fight about children, they fight about sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, one hopes that all of these things are the same. So very interesting. I was having a conversation who, who actually knew President Obama. 
And I heard this story about President Obama. It wasn't firsthand, but it wasn't written up. This is what this guy told me. He, he, he was an intern. <clears throat> and um, a friend of his, this was a little while ago, but and he was still a young guy. But anyway, um, he had he another intern who was, an, and who was working for Obama. And apparently the, this young guy was about to marry a woman. And Obama said, okay, um, let me ask you three questions before you get into proposing to her. Number one, are you interested in what she has to say? Number two, does she make you laugh? And three, do you think she'll be a good mother? I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and that is inter- interesting. Way looking at it. Yeah. And as the guy said, geez, you know, and did not propose to the woman. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was good. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Saving a lot of time. <laughs> you save you a lot of time and heartache. Right. No, that's that's an interesting story. One one book I did read a long time ago was I think it was called something like um, How to Make Anyone Fall in Love with You, and I always wondered if if this was true because you know people say that you know a woman looks for a guy who is you know not needy, shows confidence, um, knows what he wants, can make you laugh, you know all these particular qualities. Do you think that someone can? you know, initiate all of these qualities to make somebody fall in love with them that they may not necessarily do it? No. No? So, I mean, I mean, at some <laughs> I point, mean, I, I think mean, I think like you can kind of fake it till you make it and, you know, you can be the, the, this person right. or confidence and all that. that, but then you fall back into who you really are and, and then kind of, you know, the, the curtain's been opened and, and you're exposed. So, okay. I mean, the thing is, you know, I mean, you can do, go do novel things together. Novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can push you over that threshold into falling in love. And when you have sex with somebody, any stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system and can push you over the threshold into falling in love. So if you, you know, get the person in bed enough times and go to a whole pile of novel things together, yes, yes, maybe you can. But I'm telling you, nothing on this planet would make Helen Fisher fall in love with Donald Trump. Right, nothing. right, right. <laughs> uh, and, 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 I, and I don't think anything would make him fall in love with me either. Because we fit within what I call somebody's love map. Mm-hmm. And we all carry in our heads, and we build this during our childhood and adolescence and as we grow up. We build an unconscious and conscious list of what we are looking for in a partner. And if that partner doesn't fit in there at all, we're not likely to do it. I mean, for example, let's, let's say on the Internet, you, I mean, you go to Match or you go to another dating site and you find somebody, oh, wow, he's a doctor. Oh, he loves to travel. Oh, he loves to, you know, um, um, play tennis and uh, he likes poetry and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, oh, this person is really cool. And then that person shows up and they're slovenly or they're way overweight or underweight or they're, you know, 40 years older than you. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. That person doesn't fit within your – they're a Republican, you're a Democrat, and, and you know, they hate certain ethnic groups that you love. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen. Right. So I think that we can push somebody that direction. Um in fact, um, with me, uh, I had a friend who was just a friend, and God, he was a pest. He was always eager to kiss me and everything. He was such a pest. And 
one day, after about two years of knowing him, I fell madly in love with him and remained in love with that man for 18 years. We traveled all over the world together, in North Korea even, and, and Outer Mongolia and, and uh, New Guinea and all over the world. And we went to operas, plays, symphonies, whatever. It was, it was a wonderful partnership. But yeah. it didn't start out with me in love with him. So it certainly can happen. It can happen. But when you say make somebody, you know, uh, you got to pick the right kind of person. It's got to be the timing is right. Let's say if they're madly in love with somebody else, that isn't going to happen. They're not even going to see you. Um, you know, if they don't fit into other parts of your love map, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It can happen, but it's not likely. Yeah. Um, when you go to dinner parties and, and you tell people what you do for a living, are they like fascinated by it? And then do you get into a whole conversation about love? Yes. 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 <laughs> it must yes. make for interesting yes, conversations, right? I'm sure people like spill their personal details and their love lives. Maybe, maybe, maybe they expose a little too much, you know, sometimes um, to you. Larry, that's a wonderful question. And nobody's <laughs> ever really mentioned that to me. That it, and by the way, I'm interested in people's love lives. I learn a huge amount about their worries, uh, uh, you know, about their experience. I learn a lot from people. Telling, I have had, I have had, you know, train conductors sit down next to me, uh, you know, and tell me their story. Uh, and, and, you know, people in airplanes, certainly. Yeah. But not just the person sitting next to me. I mean, the, 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 not the waitress, I can't remember, you know, the uh, flight attendant. Flight attendant. <laughs> uh, um, but what's interesting is my identical twin sister is a hot air balloon pilot. And when we're together, people would rather talk about uh, how to balloon ballooning. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, no way. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. And I'm often uh, perfectly happy to say nothing, but uh, it, but if people uh, know about it or, or something and want to talk about it, I, I'm really happy to do it. It's, I'm a, and I learn more from the public, actually, than I do from my academic uh, friends, because most academics, they, they're into the paradigm. They're not seen outside of the paradigm. Uh, and uh, and often they're very doubtful, you know. They're sort of prove it to me kinds, and so I got to go run through everything to prove it. Which right. you know I've already proven it, so I, I, it's just tiring. But uh, but um, the public comes up with all these very creative things, or they'll tell me about some poems or a movie or this or that or what happened here and there, and and they're from all over the world. I mean, I've gotten phone calls from oh a, a girl in Angola. Does he, they're always asking the same question. Does he love me? Does she love me? Why doesn't he or she love me? <laughs> or what do I do to make them love me? You know, it's, it's all... Or it's about uh, serotonin boosters, uh, SSRIs. You know, I got one last week from a poor guy. You know, his... Um, oh, he was in this wonderful... I think it's about four-year relationship. They, you know, they lived together and everything. And I guess she wasn't doing well in school. And, and so she got onto, I don't know, Lexapro, Prozac. So one of the things that drives up the serotonin system, and high serotonin suppresses the dopamine system. So, uh, and uh, she fell out of love with them. And you know, um, uh, I think actually they were married. Wants a divorce now. And he said, you know, she's been six weeks onto this drug, and now she's her personality's entirely changed. And so, uh, you know, so anyway. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I get. But the, my last experiment's really important, though. I mean, they've gone on and done other ones since then, but the last one was we put um, uh, 17 people into the brain scanner who were in love long-term. 
uh, who were uh, um, married an average of 21 years. They kept on coming into the lab and saying, I'm still in love with him. I'm still in love with her. And I thought, nobody Americans don't think you can remain in love. I'm not just attached, not just loving, but in love. So we put 17 of them in the machine, and sure enough, we found almost exactly the same brain activity as we did among those who were just falling happily in love. There were some differences. Um, uh, when you've just fallen in love, there's activity in brain regions linked with anxiety. And when you've been married to somebody for 21 years, you're not so anxious if they're a little late or, you know, you, instead we found activity in brain regions linked with calm and pain suppression. But we also found activity that helped me understand what makes a happy partnership. Psychologists say all kinds of things about what makes a happy partnership. All good. All good. Don't show contempt. Uh, don't criticize. Uh, these are the stuff of John Gottman, excellent material. Um, don't be defensive. Uh, don't stonewall and not talk about things, etc. All good. All good. Yep. But this is what the brain says. Among those people in that experiment who scored very high on our happiness scale, or just a pencil and paper scale, in the machine, we found activity in three brain regions, a brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. So um, oh, I've had a lot of um, sort of beautiful moments from this adventure. Is there still something, though, in, in your mind that's kind of a mystery when it comes to love that you would love to uncover or, you know, um, put some effort towards next, you know, w with your studies? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm sure I haven't uncovered everything. Uh, oh, well, for example, we don't know what alcoholism does to these brain systems um, or drug abuse or exercise or sugar or um, all kinds of things. Um uh, so that's that's interesting, um, but in terms of these four personality styles, it's my hypothesis that um, people who are very expressive of of these different brain of these different brain systems uh, are going to be predisposed to different kinds of addictions and and diseases. Now, it, this is just my hypothesis, but it is my guess, uh, hopefully educated guess, that people who are very high on the dopamine scale. The, explorers, the novelty seeking, risk taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, are going to be more inclined to addictions uh, and perhaps philandering. Whereas those who are very high on the serotonin scale, what I call builders, may be more inclined to OCD. Um, and uh, those who are very high on the testosterone scale, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical people, are going to be more inclined to narcissism and even on the uh, of the spectrum, uh, the autism spectrum, whereas those who are very expressive of the traits in the estrogen system, I call them negotiators. Uh, these people are verbal skills, people skills, see the big picture, nurturing, trusting, imaginative people, um, are going to be more inclined to clinical depression. So... Um, none of that's been established. I'm hoping that more clinical psychologists, I do give a lot of speeches to them, um, will begin to use my questionnaire. It takes 10 minutes 
and then take a look at their patients, their clients, and begin to not only understand more about how to talk to them uh, so that they can hear you, but also the kinds of problems that these people are likely to encounter in their lives. What would you say to somebody that would want to follow in, in your footsteps and continue studying love? I think um, read everything you can. I mean, every one of my books has a huge bibliography. Um, and get yourself a Ph.D. in neuroscience or, or physiological psychology or um, biological. Anthropologists don't really teach this stuff. Uh, um, a physiological psychology and a neuroscience uh, uh, you, and you, these days you really, well, you don't need a Ph.D. depends what they want to do with it. If they want to be clinical or they want to be a therapist, uh, a couple of therapists is a very interesting thing these days. If they want to go into social work, um, just get yourself an advanced education and, and, then, and get to doing it. I could talk to you forever, um, but I thank you so much for, for doing this, and uh, I appreciate it. Um, and I look forward to reading more of your books and watching your TED Talks and everything else you have in your future. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Ellen Fisher, biological anthropologist. To check out more on Dr. Fisher, you can visit her website at ellenfisher.com. Download and follow the My Famed Explained podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search My Famed Explained. Have an idea for a future show or want to sponsor the show? You can email us at myfamedexplained at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Larry Gilbert, and this is the My Famed Explained podcast at myfamedexplained.com. <laughs>